This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Michael Allen, a scholar of world literature with a focus on Africa and the Middle East. This episode is about policing reading in colonial Egypt. It might seem obvious that it's good to read in ways that are literary, critical, and modern. But Michael Allen argues that viewing certain ways of reading as literary, critical, and modern also involves creating a stereotype of a bad reader who is unliterary, uncritical, and backwards. In colonial Egypt, British authorities relied on stereotypes of Islamic reading practices to treat local people as merely memorizing and repeating what they read. As a result, local people were considered incapable of thinking critically and of holding valid political opinions. Michael Allen, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm quite happy to be here. So we're going to talk about what makes certain ways of reading count as modern and literary, and by contrast, why certain kinds of reading have been judged as failing to be modern and literary. And we're going to focus mostly on colonial era Egypt, but to get us started, I understand there was a protest in Egypt in more recent times that brought up these same issues. Can you tell me what happened there? Uh, in 2000, there were a number of protests around this Syrian novel called Banquet for Seaweed that had been circulating in Cairo. And there's a passage in the book that one of the commentators for this newspaper mm-hmm. had read as blasphemy. Okay. And so students at the University of Al-Azhar had taken to the streets in protest. So by the time I arrived in Egypt, the protest had happened, but there was still a broad discussion about the nature of these protests. And I guess what I found curious was that most of the commentators on this protest all took the side of the book against these supposedly fanatical students who misunderstood it. So then the, the question for me was actually to say, how is it or why is it and how is it that these protesters get purged from the domain of a literary public that the only way that the literary establishment could understand these protesters is either of having misread the book okay or to accuse them of not having read the book at all yeah so these 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 commentators within the literary establishment they were saying oh these protesters are not reading in the proper modern literary way. And that's why they've misunderstood this situation. Is that? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the the particular accusation launched against the novel doesn't quite work out as neatly as that critic had. So it it is a sort of strange case, but what you find is you, you recourse the same sort of thing you observed in the Rushdie affair, so what happened there? Well, so Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses, there was sort of the literary establishment had this fear of protests in the global south, of people who don't appreciate Salman Rushdie as a literary figure and read the novel improperly. And so you get a placing of readers who take offense to a text. So, and you've been looking at these questions of, of um, how people understand specific reading practices as being either modern or in some way regressive or fanatical or anti-modern. You've been looking at that in 
colonial Egypt. So I don't really know that much about Egyptian history. Yeah. Can you just give me a really quick overview? Like, you know, when was that? What was society like at that time? Who was in power? Those yeah. kind of... I mean, part of my interest in colonial Egypt is that it's at the intersection of the Ottoman Empire, the French Empire, and the British Empire. Okay, and so those were all like colonialists in Egypt at the time? Right, or sort of overlapping okay. power structures. So to a certain extent, you know, there were different educational models depending on, you know, the influence of a particular community. I would say where colonial Egypt became of interest for this project was... Uh, specifically the emergence of the study of literature unto itself. Essentially in the 1880s, there was a small group that broke off from Al-Azhar, the Islamic University, and mm -hmm. started uh, a teacher's college, essentially to train people to teach. And that became a sort of bastion of, of intellectuals who would train in modern literary education. Okay, but so, so it was setting itself up as modern as distinct from the earlier religious universities exactly okay and so when you're when you're thinking about colonial egypt is it especially this so you said 1880s is it this late 19th century that's the moment where um this modern literary reading practice really gets uh, its own institution yeah the um, founding of a national library was uh -huh. one thing that emerged in the 1880s. Mm. The founding of, or at least the seeds of a modern university also emerged at that moment. So one of the primary questions for me had to do with a connection between literature, modernization, secularism, and what happens to those modes of reading and those modes of education, which still exist at that moment, but get figured in the birth of modern literature in a very caricatured way. So I, I think I would find it helpful to, to get a sense. So what are the differing qualities and, and emphases and, and, and activities of these two types of reading? Yeah. When it comes to reading practices, so-called modern reading practices are haunted and produce this specter of one who doesn't read properly. And, and one who doesn't read properly is someone who's reading in the religious way? Well, so this is the thing, and I don't know that there is such a thing that I would say that's a religious reading and that's not, but I would say that internal to the questions of modernity and its, and its concern with literature and reading, that there's a specter, a sort of fantasy of those who read improperly. Yeah. And those who read improperly get figured either as fanatics or as backwards. And very frequently in this caricature, religion becomes one of the ways through which reading improperly is figured. So it's not so much an, it's not a sort of anthropological project to find a weird and exotic reading practice out there that's different from what a modern reader does. But it's to say that modern reading practices produce that fantastical, fanatical specter. So what are the what are the qualities, what are the activities that are prized by this um, sort of self-described modern type of reading? When it comes to what is the reading practice that seems to be most valued by modern readers, I look at British educational policies in Egypt. So in India, there was a heavy investment on a 
sort of holistic education. But on the basis that humanities education in India was seen to lead to anti-colonial sentiments, in Egypt, there was an incredibly restrictive approach to education. So it was very... Like literary education, exactly. specifically. It was limited to a very elite few. Okay, because when was this, this happening? This was at the end of the 19th century. Okay. Um, but among that, one of the things that I'm interested in is Lord Cromer, who was a sort of overseer, authoritarian figure in the British occupation of Egypt. He has a treatise where he writes about, among other things, the issue of education in Egypt. And he talks about protests among the peasants in Egypt. And he says that the peasants cannot have political views because they don't, it's just noise, that it's not actually an opinion. The protests can only register discontent. And so there- He's saying they, they don't have enough understanding that they're- that they themselves don't really understand what they're protesting. Exactly. Okay. That it's, I mean, it is a horribly, yeah. you know, deeply well, yeah. racist <laughs> logic. Although not that surprising from a 19th century British colonialist. Right. Okay, so that's so similar to the reactions you were describing to the protests in Cairo over that novel, where the modern literary establishment couldn't credit these people with the ability to um, form a valid political opinion. But the question then is, like, what are, what are the conditions of possibility of having your speech register as an opinion? In other words, in okay. what way must one speak in order yeah. to have an opinion? Well, therein, you have the various patterns of speaking that one gets disciplined into a way of speaking that would register as a political intervention or as an opinion. So, and are those ways of speaking connected to ways of reading? Right. It's it's you know it's sort of critical distance. It's having a holistic. What, what do we mean by critical distance? Critical Just distance spell that out mean, for me. You know, so um, one of the criticisms that Lord Cromer has of Quranic reading practices is that they were seen to be based solely on memorization and recitation. And that that's not a critical practice. It's a people, quote unquote, don't even know what they're saying as they say it. Okay. Where, so, and this was, was this really part of the training that people were having in reading the Quran, that they memorize and recite it? Yeah, I mean, but I, I you know, I'd say that if you know something by heart, it's an embodied reading practice. Sure. It's one that you not only commit it to something that lives in your body, but something you know how to recite. And mm. I, ironically, so it's not a mindless thing. Exactly. But it was treated that way by Lord Cromer. Lord Cromer, who obviously is part of an educational system that taught poetry in this way at the same time, where the memorization of poems at this oh, moment right. in Victorian it means it is. You know, yeah. So there's simultaneously. So a real double this, standard. Absolutely. Wow, yeah. Um, so. So what, uh, critical distance is opposed to this kind of memorization or um, repetition. And what I'm getting is that these colonialists viewed that as uncritical because in their view, merely repeating meant that those readers weren't really personally responsible for those words. And so, but, but I still don't quite get what critical distance is positively, like other than not memorizing. Right, so what it would value is a type of private reading and okay. a capacity to generate a, a certain conjecture about a work 
but okay, one, it's so it's never... a sort of almost like an in- interpretation, whereas the idea would be that reciting it, you're not kind of interpreting it or kind of thinking about it even. Right. Okay. Again, the 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 challenge is, I mean, these racist colonialist tracts aren't defining critical reading at all, no, because no. they're fundamentally concerned with the specter of the bad backwards reader which is to yeah, say they, right. they have a lot more to say about memorization than they ever have to say about the modern reading practice. Yeah. And, and so, so critical distance is seen as important, but isn't really defined in any very specific way. Are there other qualities of what these colonialists um, or what these secular people wanted modern reading to be like? Where it circles back is really for me that the question of opinion. Opinion, um, okay. Which is so, so, so substantively, what would it take to have a work register as an opinion? What does it take to have a text register as a, a literary work? You know, or you know, what's left out if in that particular mode of reading? So what's really surprising to me here is the idea that reading in a literary way which can seem so kind of like like trivial or like decorative yeah. or, or, you know, that that is so, reading in a literary way is so closely connected with being viewed by the people in power as having political opinions that are worth paying attention to. Or actually, it's, it's, it's even more extreme than that, isn't it? It's like, if, if you don't have the right literary or quote-unquote critical reading skills you're seen as being incapable of political speech altogether. Exactly. I mean, I mean that's super sinister, isn't it? Like, I, I, don't, I don't want to get too much into the current political climate here in America, but I think there's definitely parallels with who gets dismissed because they haven't had a certain kind of education. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly right. Mm. right. Okay. Uh, a final question. Sure thing. Uh, is there anything that you read as a fanatic? I'd say I only read as a fanatic. And that's why <laughs> when you started and you said, you know, I, I think that fundamentally I identify as a bad reader. Okay. Um, and so working at a university, I feel incredible solidarity with those who have either no interest in reading or who don't read well mm. or who misread. Um, you know, I come out of a background in feminist theory and queer theory, and so there's a delight in reading against the grain. So what I am not looking to do is to render orthodox a way of reading, mm. but it's to say there's a, you know, there's an importance and a critical importance at that yeah. in thinking about the limitations of, you know, the orthodox mode of reading. Mm. Well, that's very inspiring. Michael Allen, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for the conversation. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip of Michael describing how the Egyptian novelist Naguib Mahfouz shows a young man and his parents clashing over how to read Charles Darwin. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at howtoreadnow. This episode was recorded by Jess Engerbretson and was produced by me, Milan Talunen. And by me, Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. 
Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening. 